Hello, this is Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. We come to you from our broadcast studio at CJUM in Winnipeg, and we welcome listeners tuning into our show online or from our affiliated campus and community radio stations across Canada. On today's show, we'll hear from the policy director of the British Columbia Civil Liberties Association, Michael Vaughan, about new legislation that would increase the surveillance abilities of Canada's law enforcement agencies. We'll hear from Herman Rosenfeld about the aftermath following the closure of the electromotive diesel plant in London. And we'll hear from Stephen Staples, who is with ceasefire.ca, will comment on the Conference of Defense Associations and their recommendations for military policy going ahead. First, here are the alert headlines for the week of February 9, 2012. Caterpillar closed its electromotive plant in London, Ontario last week after a month-long lockout. Dave Coles, president of the Communications, Energy and Paperworkers Union of Canada, called on Harper to respond to this act of corporate aggression, suggesting the government should seize the Caterpillar assets in London and ensure that all community and worker obligations are fully met. The Canadian Auto Workers Union has suggested employees occupy the factory unless Caterpillar provides adequate compensation packages. Caterpillar locked out workers on January 1st after the union rejected the company's demand to cut wages in half. This demand came shortly after Caterpillar announced profits rose by 83% in the last year to a record $4.9 billion. The Hartley Bay First Nation organized a protest against the Enbridge Northern Gateway Pipeline last week. Reports estimate between 600 and 1,000 protesters rallied in Prince Rupert, B.C., a main terminal point for tankers should the proposed pipeline be constructed. Many First Nations argue the pipeline threatens their traditional territory and livelihood. The hearings over the pipeline continue with more than 4,300 individuals and groups signed up to speak at different community hearings. A federal court judge ruled against an injunction from the Ottawa-Piscat First Nation to remove the Harper-appointed third-party manager and restore control of finances to the First Nation's chief. However, the judge did make this ruling on the condition that the Aboriginal Affairs and Northern Development Minister and the third-party manager comply with an agreement to pay for 22 new homes in Ottawa-Piscat. The separate judicial review on the appointment of third-party manager will still be heard on April 24th. In response to Harper's intention to impose limits to old age security, the Canadian Labour Congress is calling for a national summit on the future of Canada's retirement income system. In his speech at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Harper announced public pensions need to be overhauled to remain financially sustainable, suggesting the age of retirement be raised to 67 from 65. The CLC argues that changes to OAS shifts responsibility off the federal government, would download costs to provincial governments, and would force a lot of Canadians to retire in poverty. 
A series of fainting epidemics in factories across Cambodia has motivated workers to hold a people's tribunal to investigate working conditions in the country. Around 300 workers will provide testimonials about conditions of factories used by multinational brands such as H&M and Adidas. Workers are fainting because of the long working hours and the environment in the factory, said the president of the Cambodia Coalition for Apparel Workers Democratic Unions. This tribunal comes after a strike last year for better pay and working conditions, which involved 200,000 workers, ended with the firing of 1,000 union leaders. A hospital in Greece has been occupied by employees and declared under complete workers' control. A statement issued by the workers blames the enduring problems of the healthcare system on piecemeal policy that fails to recognize that the root of the problem is global neoliberalism and brutal capitalist attacks on the poor, working, and middle classes. To this, the workers say they are responding to the authoritarianism of imposed austerity measures with democracy. Those are the alert headlines for this week. Now for Around the Left for the week of February 9th, 2012. The forum Stop Canada's Environmental Injustice will take place on Thursday, February 16th at 7 o'clock p.m. in room 2212 of the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. Speakers will include Ben Paulus of the Indigenous Environmental Network, Raul Barbano of Common Frontiers, Brent Patterson of the Council of Canadians National Office, Kim Carriage of Greenpeace, Dave Vassy of Environmental Justice Toronto, and Andrea Peloso of Code Pink. The forum will focus on the challenges of how best to link and advance our common struggle for environmental and climate justice in Canada and internationally. On Thursday, February 16th at 7 o'clock p.m., come out to the University of Winnipeg's Richardson College of the Environment and Science to attend Tar Sands, Pipelines and Tankers. The public forum on the Enbridge Northern Gateway Pipeline features Dr. Wade Davis, the author, explorer-in-residence with the National Geographic Society and the University of Winnipeg's visiting professor and senior fellow in the Master's in Development Practice, Indigenous Development Program, Gerald Amos, who is the former elected chief counselor for the Hila First Nation, Lynn Fernandez, economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, and Anne Lindsay, the former executive director of the Manitoba Eco-Network. The forum Living the Limit, Criminalization, Incarceration and the Law will take place at 7 o'clock p.m. on February 16th in room 1101 of the Sanford Fleming Building in Toronto. A panel discussion will celebrate the double book launch of Dean Spade's Normal Life, Administrative Violence, Critical Trans Politics and the Limits of Law and David Gilbert's Love and Struggle, My Life in SDS, The Weather Underground and Beyond. Participants will include Dean Spade, author, attorney, educator, and trans activist, Krista Big Canoe, First Nation woman, mother, and lawyer, and A.J. Withers, Toronto-based anti-poverty and disability justice organizer and author. The public forum Haiti, Solidarity and Social Justice will take place February 17th at 7 o'clock p.m. at the Steelworkers Hall at 25 Cecil Street in Toronto. The forum will evaluate aid and recovery effort in Haiti two years following the earthquake and discuss whether or not it has met the expectations of the Haitian people. It will also look at Canada's role, as well as the future of the United Nations, police and military occupation force in Haiti. 
Speakers include Nicole Phillips, professor and staff attorney for the Institute for Justice and Democracy in Haiti, Roger Annis, coordinator of the Canada-Haiti Action Network. For more information, go to canadahaitiaction.ca. The Network for Pan-African Solidarity Toronto extends a warm invitation to you to join them at the African Liberation Month film series, which will feature film screenings followed by intergenerational panel discussions and dialogue with various activists and community members. On February 17th at 7 o'clock p.m. at the Bayhan Centre for Information Technology, 40 St. George Street in Toronto, they will be screening Crisis in the Congo, Uncovering the Truth. Panelists will include Mikhail Misakabo, educator and member of the Network for Pan-African Solidarity, Safia Geher, member of the International Solidarity Committee of QP Ontario and doctoral student at the University of Toronto, and Bodia Makaria. The event is free, although donations will be accepted, and it is wheelchair accessible. For more information, please contact the Pan-African Solidarity Network, U of T, at networkforpanafricansolidarity at gmail.com. On February 18th, from 3 o'clock to 5 o'clock p.m. in Winnipeg, check out a screening of an award-winning film, Myths for Profit, and participate in a panel discussion that will include the director, Amy Miller, as well as Dennis Lewicki of the Social Planning Council of Winnipeg and Roger Annis of the Canada-Haiti Action Network. Myths for Profit challenges the popular conception that Canada is a global good guy by reviewing our dismal record in international development, national defense policy, and peacekeeping. The event will take place in the Carroll Shields Auditorium at the Millennium Library in Winnipeg. There is a suggested donation of $5, but no one will be turned away. New legislation being considered by Parliament will greatly compromise private information of Canadians. According to a comprehensive report published last month, law enforcement agencies will have a greater power to monitor the online activities of casual users of the internet. Just how concerned should we be about these intrusive powers? To discuss this, we're joined by Michael Vaughn, the policy director of the British Columbia Civil Liberties Association, the group that published the report. So thank you for joining us, Michael. Very nice to be here. This uh, legislation, it's not the first time that, that Parliament has considered legislation of this kind, is it? No, not at all. In fact, it's been proposed for well over 10 years now. Um, this would be the fourth time uh, that bills have been brought forward. Uh, we're expecting them any day now. The government has promised that they will. Uh, but the three other times, the bills have died on the order paper. They've either um, not gone forward because an election has been called or because Parliament has been prorogued. Mm-hmm. Well, could you maybe uh, just share with our, our listeners uh, the, the major concerns you seem to have uh, with regard to this sort of legislation? Sure. Um, there are some classic concerns. As I say, for 10 years we've been hearing about this, so we've had lots of time to consider it and to understand the issues. Two big components of what's called lawful access, meaning what the police are allowed to lawfully intercept, get their hands on, etc. Whereas if I'm going to intercept your phone call, that is, of course, against the criminal code. So that's where the term comes, lawful access. Two components of it are, one, in building surveillance capacity into all telecommunications for Canadians. That would be the first component. So the surveillance architecture, technological. 
The second component is to lower the standards for police, um, their ability to get any of this information. So as you know, the kind of the gold standard, the way that we normally protect privacy is you get a warrant. And in order to get a warrant, you need to demonstrate to the court um, that you have certain levels of suspicion based on concrete indications. All of those standards would be coming down. Um, So for some things, they wouldn't require a warrant at all. And for other things, standards like reason to believe go down to reason to suspect. So a general lowering of what the police have to consider their justifications are for access to information. And as I say, building in back doors for them to be able to intercept telecommunications um, nationwide. Well, with that uh, lowering of um, you know, the, the th- that threshold, uh, what kinds of accountability mechanisms would uh, be put in place to uh, protect from uh, the abuse of uh, the powers of law enforcement? Well, that's an excellent question. Um, so far, we're hearing nothing. Um, so there's two components of this. One, the police have not demonstrated, and we know because we've been asking for 10 years, that they need any of these powers. Um, the police already have considerable powers, uh, and they require uh, considerable powers in order to investigate crime. But the exact need for this has never been demonstrated. And privacy commissioners of across Canada have asked police forces to please bring us a demonstration of what seems to be the problem. So that's at the front end. We don't know really why this is, um, why this is needful. Um, but at the back end, as you say, There have been various proposals made for, well, you know, we could have an audit, I suppose, or we could report to Parliament about general use of this sort of thing. Um, But it's not very helpful. Um, One, uh, auditing or some kind of accounting procedure at the uh, end stage is not how we protect privacy up front. Um, That's why we use the warrant process, because you can't protect privacy after it's been violated. Second, even in places that have a much more rigorous uh, accountability mechanism than we are proposing here in Canada, because these sorts of measures have been brought in in other jurisdictions like the United Kingdom and the U.S., what that accountability really does is effectively show that the measures don't work to create any um, great increase in the efficacy of crime investigation, but they certainly do work to increase just general surveillance. So we are not seeing those accountability mechanisms bringing real accounting in other jurisdictions, but we are seeing them illustrate the massive increase in ordinary surveillance that these measures allow. So unsurprisingly. Well, what would be, what do you see as the the motivation for, for bringing in these powers? I mean, will they at least make us safer? Well, um, surveillance isn't safety, although often these things are conflated. Um, the motivation is because um, in the way that the government and police so often, um, I have to say, uh, speak down to the general public, what they say is this is going to help us catch bad guys. Um, again, the problem with that is not that anybody is against uh, the catching of the bad guys. The problem is that this kind of extremely draconian measure not only has, as I say, been shown not to um, really impact the ability to, um, the the clearance rate for crime, let's say, in the United Kingdom, Um, but 
A third problem is in terms of will it make us safer or more secure is quite often the language. In fact, punching back doors into our telecommunications systems is not only not guaranteed to make us more secure, it is actually de facto making us less secure because those back doors can be exploited um, and indeed have been. So we're undermining our cyber security writ large in the country in order to hypothetically make us safer, although there's no evidence of the latter and certainly very concrete evidence for the former. Hmm. Um, You've pointed to uh, instances in the United Kingdom and abroad where this sort of legislation has come down. Are there any particular examples that that come to mind, uh, like maybe perhaps uh, along the lines of cautionary tales that uh, we might want to work about, worry about when applied here in Canada? Well, um, we've just seen a few cautionary tales. You might have noticed that uh, Anonymous recently hacked into the phone system of the FBI, um, famous hackers, um, or I don't want to use organization. They're not that organized, at least according to their own, uh, their own messaging. Um, but, you know, the, when, the, when the FBI and the Pentagon, et cetera, are getting hacked, you understand the importance of cybersecurity. And when you want to know what these back doors that we're pumping into the system can do, um, the most flagrant cautionary tale would be um, the Athens Olympics. Over 100 high-level Greek officials had their telecommunications systems hacked. We don't know if that was espionage by uh, a a nation or some kind of organized, or if it was merely criminal hacking. Um, Really, nobody knows. But that level of complete security failure um, is exactly what you're inviting by building in this vulnerability into your system ostensibly to make you safer. Certainly the Greek example, 100 high-level officials, um, well-documented. Nobody knows who did it, but the fact that it happened is well-documented is one of the things that we want to point to when maybe ordinary Canadians feel like they aren't the targets of surveillance, um, but they certainly are users of telecommunications. So if nothing else on that level, there's, there's cause for concern. Mm. So uh, who is uh, within Canada is opposing this uh, kind of legislation, uh, if anybody? Well, interestingly enough, virtually everybody opposes it. Um, and I say that because, again, we've had 10 years. The only people who've been in favor of it are the government, uh, the government in power. Right now, I think both opposition parties are, or all three opposition parties are not in favor of it. Um, the, uh, the government and the police and intelligence agents are really the only people who are in favor. Um, when I say who's not, industry used to have a very, very strong stance against this. Again, as I pointed out, this is going to cost them money, it's time, it's vulnerabilities in their system, etc. Right now they're taking uh, a much more neutral stance. Over the last 10 years, government has really, um, I, I mean, not, not to put too fine a point on it, bought off industry bought off their opposition, and they made that um, uh, a focus of how they were going to go about doing things. Civil society um, is flagrantly opposed and always has been. And at this point, we have something like 75,000 ordinary Canadians who've signed on to a petition that's been organized by Open Media under the kind of coalition standing Stop Online Spying. So, you know, that's that's a very healthy number of signatures on a coalition um, on a petition indicating that ordinary people are starting to really understand that the battle here in some ways 
is really part of a larger piece about whether or not we're going to have a free Internet. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly a very timely uh, and uh, you know, critical bit of information. Uh, Michael Vaughn, I want to thank you very much for uh, bringing this issue to our attention. Thanks for joining us on Alert. Well, thank you kindly. And we've been speaking with Michael Vaughn, who is the uh, policy director of the British Columbia Civil Liberties Association. Look for the latest issue of Canadian Dimension on the newsstands. Besides a roundtable discussion on the state of the global economy with economists Jim Stanford, Sam Gindin, and Marjorie Griffin Cohen, this issue of Canadian Dimension features a special focus on the Inuit. We call it Inuit Country. This is a unique collection of articles on a part of Canada seldom heard from. Our next issue examines the fascinating degrowth movement that is taking hold in Europe and North America. Look for it in March. You can obtain these issues on select newsstands or by contacting Canadian Dimension at info at CanadianDimension.com. A month after it locked out its 450-plus workers, U.S. heavy equipment maker Caterpillar Inc. announced last Friday that it is closing its Electromotive Canada plant in London, Ontario. What's the real story behind this plant closure? Is this just a one-off action, or as some commentators are suggesting, the beginning of an employer campaign to weaken unions across Canada? If so, what might be the next target in this campaign? To answer these and other questions, Alert has contacted Canadian Dimension Labour columnist Herman Rosenfeld. Herman retired from the Education Department of the Canadian Auto Workers after having worked on the line at General Motors for many years. Welcome back to Alert Radio, Herman. Thank you. Glad to be here. So what's the real story behind this plant closure? Was this what Caterpillar was aiming for all along when it asked workers to take a 50% cut in their wages? And why would it want to shut down a plant that it had only recently purchased? Well, a lot of folks are saying that, in fact, it's amazing how much is, is, is happening in, like, in the, the regular press, the, the sort of the bourgeois press, but not the hard right ones. They're saying that, in fact, not only the, the question shouldn't be, was this had in mind when they made the wage cut? Was this in the mind, what they had in mind when they first bought the place? Because they they bought this place through their uh, through their subsidiary called Progress, interestingly enough, um, from these two vulture funds in 2010. And some people say that they, what they had in mind, and they had got five million dollars in loans from the federal government. What they had in mind essentially was to uh, to eventually shut this, open up a non-union plant in the U.S. Uh, take the technology, shut this down. Take the technology and uh, and uh, go to the states completely. Is this just, as I mentioned earlier, a one-off action, or do you think that this is indicative of a larger campaign by employers to weaken unions across the country? Well, you said originally that it was the start. It isn't the start? It's it's a continuation of uh, of a generalized series of attacks on on the labor movement. Um, it, it has a component of actually attacking unions, particularly around the public sector, in terms of demands to uh, to actually dramatically weaken, uh, to isolate them, and dramatically weaken uh, what they have, particularly and to privatize a lot of their services. This is what's happening in Toronto right now, uh, at least those demands. But um, also to, to attack key uh, gains of, of of working class people and unions. So, for example, uh, when you had the bailout of the uh, of the auto industry, uh, uh, the big three, that they took away a lot of their benefits. Um, there's attacks on the uh, on, on the defined benefit pension plans. There were huge defeats in two major struggles in Ontario, Valley Inco, and uh, U.S. Steel. And the U.S. Steel plant, in fact, is close is, is 
not closed down completely, but they've closed the blast, kept the blast furnace closed. And it's a, people are saying it's a lot similar to what's happening in uh, in, uh, in 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 Cat. So this is part of uh, of a, a significant movement and uh, of capital, and not all capitals, but in general, capital in general to actually to to deepen the neoliberal agenda, even in the face of what it's done to to the, to cause that last crisis. Why do you think this is happening now? Well, I think that they um, the, the, it's part of this austerity move after they. Uh, after the the the, the um, crisis, uh, the financial crisis, um, funds were spent to keep the economy going, but uh, there are demands from capital to actually uh, increase their capacity to um, to accumulate capital. <laughs> and one of the key spaces to do that is to break the union movement. And I also think they can. They see that because so much of the working class and so many people, even in the union movement, uh, unionized workers have have lost wages, benefits, uh, job security. That the uh, that there's a the general genuine feeling that the better off workers um, are isolated, and they want to take advantage of that. So this this is a strategy not just here, th- certainly throughout this continent. What's the, been the role of the Harper administration throughout all of this, and what about the Ontario government as well? Well, Harper government actually has fed this. I mean, it's part of their their um, their, their economic strategy is around selling. Uh, um, natural resources, uh, in particular, like the tar sands and, and, and oil and gas, uh, either to the U.S. or to the East, and also to break the to, to reduce the, the union movement dramatically. Remember that they had back-to-work legislation against the, the um, postal workers um, when they were just doing these rotating strikes, particularly not to uh, um, become a problem to the economy. And secondly, they uh, they, they threatened uh, um, back-to-work legislation to Air Canada, um, and Air Canada is a private company. And they claimed that because it uh, it was uh, unsafe to the economy, uh, that was a nudge, nudge, wink, wink to say that we're going to do our best to actually try and dramatically weaken the Canadian labor movement, which is also weakened, uh, uh, weakened already. What do you think might be the next target in this kind of ongoing campaign? Well, I mean, right now the um, they just there was a settlement with uh, with uh, um, outside workers in in, in in the city of Toronto, and uh, the other unions uh, that that in fact is the is an is is the next step along with the other public sector unions there, but you also have big three bargaining coming up in uh, um, uh, in, in auto, uh, no longer big three, um, and that could be the next step where they're going. Um, there's also the, uh, the the federal public sector workers. Um, the Ontario government has, uh, um, like its sister governments, has hired this guy Drummond to actually to write a report about the necessity of austerity. And they're going to be coming up uh, up to their public sector unions, and it's also around cuts to uh, social services. So it's 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 like a triangle. It's the cuts to social services, um, and privatization, attacks on public sector workers and unions, but um, continuing attack on the private sector. The private sector is pretty well defeated. Those uh, the two ma- the major struggles uh, which I mentioned were both steel worker struggles in in Hamilton and. Uh, and uh, Sudbury, and they waged pretty good strikes locally, but they were unable to move it to actually ways to challenge other employers and build campaigns outside of their communities. And that's what the CAW didn't do around Caterpillar. And I so think why it's, why has the labor movement been so tepid in its support of these workers? Well, I mean, it's not so much they're tepid in support of the workers that they're they're not bold in 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 terms of uh, in terms of challenging employers. I think number one. Is that they're afraid of, uh, of of they're so dependent upon these employers they're afraid of actually bold movements to challenge them. Secondly, in order to defeat them, you need political struggles, struggles which unite the rest of the working class, which actually isolate other employers. I, I rotating strikes, 
but also raise political demands. For example, in the cat, uh, the, somebody they should have been raising the demand that the government take it over or that the government seize the uh, seize the assets. Um, that's not easy to get, but you need you need radical tactics for radical demands. But they don't think outside the box. They're so used to this dependence upon the individual employers, and they've been defeated. They've been defeated. It's a very very sad day for the labor movement in this country right now. Well, as always, we want to thank you for your insights into these issues, Herman. Oh, thank you very much. And uh, I think, you know, it's interesting that a lot, a lot of the press on this isn't coming from the left. It's coming from uh, ordinary columnists and uh, regular middle-of-the-road columnists in a lot of the bourgeois press. And uh, they're saying what the labor movement almost is afraid to say. Why do you think that is? Um, I don't know. It's hard to tell. I think, it's, I think it has a lot to do with the political conservatism. I, I mean, a small C conservatism, the political uh, um, uh, weakness of, uh, of the labor movement. They, they just don't have the perspective to say, let's build a class-wide movement and let's actually you know, challenge the effects of the neoliberal agenda and free trade by actually calling on the state to actually take over some of these places, regulate them, to, uh, this is not really happening, and it, I, I think it, it's the effect of uh, being defensive for such a long time. And one would have hoped that this would have been an opportunity, because there's so much support for this. This would have been an opportunity to raise these kind of issues, but not feel sorry for us, but raise it as a way as that let's go on the offensive a bit. Let's show that we can gain some victories. Let's put some pressure on the government. Why do you think that um, the Council of Canadians, for example, or some other organization hasn't really led the charge in, in giving the support needed to these workers? Interestingly enough, I, I, it's a good question. I, I haven't heard any political, any organization that has actually... It's not a question of supporting the workers. There's been a lot of support for the workers in, that, in the community of London, for example. The, the local union has done an amazing job of, you know, uh, you walk through that town, all the merchants, you know, have these signs. I mean... What's his name? Uh, uh, Mark's Work Warehouse, a famous, uh, you know, like used to cover these, refused to sell caterpillar boots and stuff. It's not so much the supporting the workers, it's a question of actually making this a political campaign. And it's very, very hollow. The, the, the question's an excellent one. It's hard to know why there is no uh, champion that's taking this up. Um, one of the hope the labor movement is they, they organize a, a nice demonstration and a big demonstration the 21st of January, but it didn't go anywhere. And um, it's very, and I, I think a lot of this has to do, a lot of the weakness has to do with they're really not mobilizing the members. They're not trying to educate the members about this. They're not trying to deal with their concerns. When members and workers think, well, I'm afraid of turning off the public by taking radical action. They don't challenge them. They don't say, well, we can do it. This, this is what the effect of, 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 of taking this action is going to inspire people. Um, unlike what happened during the days of action in the 1990s, where, in fact, a lot of the people who voted for Harris were, uh, who, who, who were part of that movement had voted for Harris, the conservative. But the idea was to challenge their thinking, challenge them and, 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 and inspire them. And they changed their minds. And they got involved in, in, in some of the, uh, you know, like the rotating strikes. That's not happening now. They're saying all oh, the members aren't ready. Didn't happen. Well, we'll leave it there for today, but I want to thank you again for speaking with us today, Herman. My pleasure. Always good to speak with you folks. Alert Radio has been speaking with Herman Rosenfeld, the Canadian Dimension Labour columnist and retired member of the Education Department of the Canadian Auto Workers. With the current session of Parliament now well underway, Parliament is considering policy options for the Canadian military. 
A number of figures will be appearing in front of the Standing Committee on National Defense to give their opinions on this front. One of the presenting bodies is the Conference of Defense Associations, or the CDA. The CDA has been branded by the public advocacy group ceasefire.ca as pro-war lobbyists. To discuss this group's aims and, uh, and alternative approaches that could be taken for Canada's foreign and military policy, we're joined on the line by Stephen Staples. He is the president of the Rideau Institute and uh, will be appearing in front of the Standing Committee on National Defense this week. So welcome to Alert, Stephen. Thanks, Michael. I'm also the co-founder of ceasefire.ca and was one of the people that would call them the pro-war lobby. <laughs> okay, well, why don't we start with that? Why are you calling them the, the pro-war lobby? Because that's what they are. I mean, I, I've known this organization for many years. Um, I've advocated for defense and foreign policies that are more in line with, I think, what Canadian values are, which is uh, protecting our sovereignty here at home and contributing to things like UN peacekeeping internationally and not involved in these uh, schemes like missile defense or the Iraq invasion, Afghanistan, and, and uh, dumb decisions like to buy the F-35. And this organization, the Conference of Defense Associations, has been around for a long time. It's made up of retired military brass who leave the military, often very young, with very substantial pensions, and go into this organization, which is um, a very effective advocacy organization, with close links to the defense industry uh, and uh, and the Harper Conservatives, and act as a as a uh, advocacy organization. That's why we would call them lobbyists because they're an advocacy organization, um, as ours is. Um, but they push for things like increased military spending on a massive scale. They've been pushing for you know they were pushing the line that we are winning in Afghanistan. They are in favor of buying the F-35. They also think that we should be preparing to fight for a war in Iran, whatever the circumstances may be, and so, or whatever the you know whatever the consequences rather may be of that. And so that's why uh, we're we're confronting them, and we just happen to be back to back in front of a committee of uh, an all-party committee of MPs uh, this week. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, you you mentioned uh, that there were some links with the uh, with military industry. Yes, in fact, uh, one of their uh, key people, the, the past president of the Canadian Defense Associations Institute, a guy named Paul Manson, uh, is actually General Paul Manson, retired. He was the former chief of defense staff, the highest military officer uh, in Canada uh, during the 1980s. It was under his watch that Canada uh, considered buying nuclear submarines. Um, it was also under his watch where we bought the CF-18s during the Mulroney era. Uh, he's now the, uh, after retiring in 89, uh, he became the head of Lockheed Martin Canada uh, up until the late 1990s. Now, he's been out there. He's, he's uh, part of the CDA, uh, writing op-eds. Um, uh, in, in extolling the virtues of the F-35, saying this is, this is the best plane for Canada, uh, co-authoring it with a, with a colleague who used to be the head of the Air Force. It's also now part of the CDA. And um, uh, when he was the head of Lockheed Martin, which, uh, Lockheed Martin Canada, which is the prime contractor and, 
and the one to, to stand to benefit the most from this multi-billion dollar contract. So you're, you seem to be suggesting that there aren't just issues of uh, you know, war and peace, that there's definite conflict of interest issues here. I think certainly on an indirect level, it's not surprising that the viewpoints uh, of the Conference of Defense Associations tends to line up very closely with the conservative government, with industry, and with the military brass itself, because the other, the other point is that they receive $100,000 a year from the military. So they are very much uh, influenced um, uh, and funded uh, by special interests, uh, whereas, for instance, uh, the Rito Institute, which is the parent organization of ceasefire.ca, receives its funding from individuals who spend, you know, send $50, you know, check uh, once every few months. Uh, we receive funding from some foundations, and we're out hustling uh, for work to, to maintain our organization while they're pocketing at least $100,000 a year from the military. So I think that's it's a completely different scale and, and so sad of the situation that the defense lobby in Ottawa is so powerful and so well-funded uh, from industry and the government, and that the voices for peace um, are, are not and struggle to be heard uh, amongst this din. Now, uh, you, you mentioned uh, among the proposals that uh, they're, they're, the CDA is, mon, is uh, lobbying for a war with Iran and increased military spending. Is there anything else that uh, they are lobbying for that might concern Canadians? Well, there's a whole new proposal now, which uh, they've been advocating for, which is to bring back uh, military training uh, on university campuses, something that used to happen at the end of the war and, uh, and, uh, and was done away with in the late 1960s. And this is an old idea that's coming back now that the Conference of Defense Association is championing. And what I find is often that this, this organization, when they, when they first propose things like military you know, training camps on campuses or bombing Iran, no matter what the consequences are, they seem really out there and extreme at first. But soon after, the government starts making the same kind of sounds. Uh, so this is what's, uh, I, I think maybe this is a preview of what's to come. Hmm. Well, uh, I, as I mentioned, you're appearing in front of the standing committee yourself, or you mentioned it back to back, uh, and this uh, you'll probably be making your presentation as this uh, episode of Alert goes to air. Could you maybe uh, give us uh, uh, what is a preview or, or an indication of what your uh, group is uh, recommending, uh, the, the direction we should be taking our military um, at this juncture in history? Well, sure, and the, we have to fit within the realms of the study, which is about defense preparedness. That's the study that the committee is working on right now. The committee, as you know, uh, is dominated by conservatives because they have a majority government, so they really do set the agenda for it. However, um, in, during the study of milita- uh, military preparedness, they had you know, one witness after another appear before the committee saying, everything's fine, everything's fine, we're ready, we're ready, we're ready. Uh, so I'm the first one uh, who, will, uh, who will be coming in to be uh, raising concerns uh, in the other direction. I'm going to be looking at military spending, for instance. Um, I think that there's uh, uh, clearly problems in our military spending. It's way out of kilter. Uh, it has grown much faster 
than even the size of the government has grown in the last 10 years. In fact, 1.5 times faster. And that's some new information that I'll be sharing for the first time uh, at the committee. And so I think that defense spending, uh, while uh, is expected to be reduced, can be reduced even more than other areas. So other departments can be shielded uh, and defense spending can be reduced at a greater rate because it has grown at a much greater rate over the last 10 years. We'll be pointing out that, you know, we're the sixth highest military spender uh, within NATO and with, uh, with uh, people concerned about pensions and with people concerned about the environment and their social programs. There's no need to be committing to buying F-35 stealth fighters at this point where there's no fixed contract, there's no fixed cost, we have no idea what the maintenance and operation of these things, uh, let alone what kind of performance they're going to eventually have because they're still in testing models now. Can you believe that only the other day they just flew the F-35 for the first time at night? So they've now confirmed the F-35 can fly in the dark. That's how far they are on testing this plane, and that's what we're going to be pointing out to the members of that committee. You know, as you've been talking, Stephen, you know, I'm reminded of that line uh, by Dwight Eisenhower about beware the military-industrial complex. Are are we seeing a level of military spending and and, and military investment so high that that, that it's taking on a life of its own and that uh, it may transcend what uh, individual governments and and citizens might be able to uh, effect on their own? Well, I think that's certainly the case. It it, It was the basis of a report that we put out in September last year called the cost of 9-11, where we imagined what government spending and defense spending might be had 9-11 never happened. They say we'd taken the current level in the year 2000 and carried it forward 10 years, adjusted it for inflation, normal inflationary growth, and kind of said, where would we be? And we found that uh, in defense spending, it had increased $92 billion dollars. Uh, we had spent uh, over the last 10 years on defense as a result of 9-11. Uh, that was a, a growth of uh, nearly doubling uh, in, uh, in real terms, about 60% in adjusted terms for inflation. But that's not all. Other departments grew even more in the national security area. And so what we, while n- not as much in total, but as a percentage increase, grew even faster than defense, which was posting some gains of over 12% a year at one point. So we, we call this, you know, what we're seeing here is a national security establishment that has grown up, uh, where people are making their money, their careers are being made, uh, defense contractors are enriching themselves, and they're, like any establishment, um, there's the problem that establishments want to perpetuate themselves far beyond uh, when they're needed anymore. And I think we do have a national security establishment, which includes defense and all the other national security agencies uh, here in Ottawa, uh, consuming great amount of resources. Well, Stephen Staples, I want to thank you very much for sharing those perspectives with us on alert. And uh, here's hoping that uh, your views get a fair hearing at the Standing Committee on National Defense. Thanks for joining us. Our guest has been Stephen Staples. He is the president of the Rideau Institute and a founding member of ceasefire.ca. I am a dragon. When I'm cleaning up my lair, I like to collect the piles of change and donate them to ravel.ca slash donate. 
I just total up the loonies, toonies and doubloons I've got lying about the cave, then head for rabble.ca slash donate. It's dragons like you and I that keep rabble.ca running. A place for everything and everything in its place, I always say. My donations belong at rabble.ca slash donate. Hi, this is Mitch Podolik, and this is Music is the Weapon. One of the things about folk music is that so much of it is built on the songs of somebody's occupation, what they do. So there are great sea songs, and there's great farmer songs. There's great mining songs. I mean, there's so many of them, but for me, one of my very favorites are cowboy songs. Songs of the Old West. Songs of working people working as cowboys. Here to start is Woody Guthrie. Come all you old-time cowboys and listen to my song. Please do not grow weary, I'll not detain you long. Concerning some wild cowboys who did agree to go. Spend the summer pleasant on the trail of the buffalo. Found myself in Griffin in the spring of 83. When a well-known famous drover come a-walking up to me. Said, how do you do, young fellow? Well, how'd you like to go? Spend a summer pleasant on the trail of the buffalo. Well, I'd be an out of work right then to the drover, I did say. Going out on the buffalo road depends upon your pay. If you pay good wages, transportation to and fro. Think I might go with you on the hunt of buffalo. Of course, I'll pay good wages and transportation, too. You'll agree to work for me until the season's through. But if you do get homesick and you try to run away, you'll starve to death out on the trail and also lose your pay. Well, with all his flattering talking, he signed up quite a train. Some ten or twelve in number, some able-bodied men. Our trip, it was a pleasant one as we hit the westward road. Till we crossed old Boggy Creek in old New Mexico. There our pleasures ended and our troubles all began. A lightning storm, it hit us and made the cattle run. Got all full of stickers from the cactus that did grow. Outlaws watching to pick us off in the hills of Mexico. Well, our working season ended and the drover would not pay. You hadn't drunk too much, you're all in debt to me. But the cowboys never had heard such a thing as a bankrupt law. So we left that drover's bones to bleach on the plains of the buffalo. 
That was Willie Guthrie with his classic Buffalo Skinners. Next, we're going to hear two songs with a story woven together between the two songs. Here is Cisco Houston with Little Joe the Wrangler. He was a little Joe the Wrangler, he'll wrangle nevermore. His days with the Ramuda, they are o'er. Twas a year ago last April that he rode into our camp. Just a little Texas straying all alone His saddle was a Texas cack made many years ago With an oak caper on one foot lightly slung His bedroll in a cotton sack was loosely tied behind And his canteen or his saddle horn was hung He said if we would give him work he'd do the best he could Though he didn't know straight up about a cow so the boss, he cut him out of mount and he kindly put him on Cause he sort of liked this little kid somehow He learned to wrangle horses and know them all by name And get them in by daybreak if he could To follow the chuck wagon and always hitch the team And help the Cosinero rustle wood well, we'd driven down to Pecos, the weather being fine. We camped on the south side in a bend. When a norther started blowing, and we called out every man, for it taken all us hands to hold him in. Well, little Joe the Wrangler was called out with the rest, although the kid had scarcely reached the herd. When the cattle they stampeded like a hailstorm long they fled And we was all a-riding for the lead Well, midst the streaks of lightning, a rider we could see It was little Joe the Wrangler in the lead He was a-riding old blue rocket with a slicker o'er his head A-trying to check the cattle in their speed at last we got them milling and kind of quieted down And the extra guard back to the wagon went But there was one a-missin' and we knew it at a glance Was a little Texas stray, poor wrangling Joe Next morning just at daybreak we found where Rocket fell In a washout twenty feet below and beneath his horse smashed to a pulp, his spur had rung the knell, was a little Texas stray, poor wranglin' Joe. She rode up to the wagon as the sun was going down, a slender little figure dressed in gray. We asked her to get down a while and pull up to the fire, and Red Hot Chuck would soon be on its way. An old slouch hat with a hole on top was perched upon her head, and a pair of bull hide shaps well greased and worn, and an old twin rig all scratched and scarred from a working in the brush, and a slick McGay tied to her saddle horn. She says she rode from Yano four hundred miles away. Her pony was so tardy could hardly go. She asked if she could stay a day and kind of rest him up. Then maybe she could find her brother Joe. We could see that she'd been riding. Her little face was sad when she talked her up her lips. It trembled so. She was the living image we all saw at a glance of our little lost horse herder wrangler Joe. 
We asked where Joe was a-ridin' if she knew the outfit's brand. Yes, his letter says it was a circle bar. It was mailed from Amarillo about four months ago from a trail herd headed north to Cinnabar. Well, I looks at Jim, he looks at Tom, and then looks back at me. There was something in our hearts we could not speak. She says she got kind of worried when she hears no more from Joe, and her new paw was getting meaner by the week. You see, our dad got shot one night before Joe and I was born. Joe and her was twins, her story run. So ma, she ups and marries, and we gets another paw. And then it was our troubles all begun. He beats us and abused us, and he starves us most of the time. He never did have young'uns of his own. Nothing Joe or I could do would ever be just right. And then Joe hightails and quits his home. Well, I give the kid my bedroll, and I bunked in with Jim. We talks and plans and schemes the whole night through. As to which of us would tell her the way that Joe was killed and break the news as easy as we knew. I'll wrangle in the morning, boy, she says as she turns in. I'll have the horses at the wagon before it's day. As the morning star was arising, I hears the kid roll out. Saddle up the old night horse and ride away. Soon we hear the horses coming, uh, heading into camp. It weren't light, but we could plainly hear the bell. And then someone a-crying, a-coming on behind. It was little Joe the Wrangler's sister, Nell. We couldn't quite console her. She had seen the outfit's brand, stamped on some stairs by the river bank below. From the looks upon our faces, she didn't have to ask. If she'd ever see her little brother, Joe. A rodeo hand is a twister. You can tell them easy, cause even the short ones have a tall walk. They're dust devil damned with a punch of bourbon and graced with a big black hat politeness. Their rainbow shirts like flags in a thousand arenas and down every road that ever led to a rodeo. The oldest Indian war gods blow smoke four ways when they pass. The bronc riders on the big rebel horses, they ride the wild ponies and name them to fit. Big Bear Mountain, Chief Tyhee, War Paint, Widowmaker, Wagon Wheel, Five Minutes to Midnight, and King's X. Calf ropers with the fast hands, Billy the Kid and Jesse James, quick with the ropes that move like an answered prayer and the lives gauged in tenths of a second on the snap finger nimble rope horses. Horse and man moving together as though they had traded souls some prairie night. Steer wrestlers making the long jumps from the backs of the locomotive train tracked dogging horses, the leaping reach onto the running steer. Rope horses and dogging teams as valuable as diamond hummingbirds. Bull riders on the Brahma bulls with the snide horns bent to smash and death as an alibi, the riders outweighed by just 2,000 pounds. Whoop swagger cowboys ignoring with a care the adding up of the constant stampede hurts. Always able to go that other further past the hellgate odds. Happily screaming the oldest, almost lost cries in the night. 
These are the heirs to the last of the Old West. There's an empty cot in the bunkhouse tonight Pinto's head hanging low His spurs and shafts hang on the wall And he's gone where the good cowboys go There's a range for every cowboy And the foreman looks after his own There'll be an empty saddle tonight But he's happy up there, I know He was riding the range last Saturday noon When another started to blow With his head in his chest heading into the west He was stopped by a cry soft and low There a crazy young calf had strayed from its small And lost in the snow and the storm It lay in a heap at the end of the draw Huddled all in the bunch to keep warm Limpy hobbled, his feet tossed him over his hoss Started again for the shack The wind blew cold and the snow piled high And poor Limpy strayed from his track He arrived at three in the morning And put the maverick to bed He flopped in his bunk, not able to move In the morning poor Limpy was dead There's an empty cot in the bunkhouse tonight Pinto's head hanging low His spurs and shafts hang on the wall If he's gone where the good cowboys go There's a range for every cowboy And the foreman looks after his own And someday he'll ride old Pinto On the range up there above The set started with Little Joe the Wrangler, performed by the late Cisco Houston. And before that, Little Joe the Wrangler's sister, performed by Harry Jackson. Then came Peter Lafarge's Rodeo Hand, and the set finished with Rosalie Sorrell singing Empty Cot in the Bunkhouse Tonight. Four great cowboy songs. I'm Mitch Pollock. This is Music as a Weapon. Solidarity. Well... That's our show for this week. Thanks for being with us. We'll be here next week at this time. If you would like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com. To hear the show again or to hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select alert. The show is also podcast on rabble.ca. The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Saigonic. Technical producers are Michael Welch and Tommy Allen. Alert headlines by Ben Wood. Around the Left by Ashley Titterton. Music is the Weapon by Mitch Podolik with technical production by Andrew Valpe. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine.